Are you an accredited investor looking for a new opportunity to generate passive income and build the retirement of your dreams? Then elevate your investment game with Viking Capital, where wealth meets wisdom. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting out, Viking Capital can help guide you towards financial freedom through passive real estate investing. With strong and transparent underwriting, Viking identifies low-risk opportunities with the goal of preserving investor capital and maximizing long-term growth potential. And their accessible and responsive investor relations team will help you understand how each investment will impact your unique financial goals. With $800 million in assets acquired, more than $230 million in equity raised, and more than 5,000 units under management, Viking Capital is your path to early retirement. To learn about Viking Capital's latest investment opportunity, which is available for you right now, visit go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best. That's go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best to get started today. Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHerCon is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, Promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Investing should be boring. If you want excitement, take a few hundred dollars and go to the casino. But investing should be boring and getting base hits consistently is going to be more effective for building your wealth in the long term than getting a really sexy IRR or equity multiple in a short time. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest, Sujaj Sham. Sujaj is joining us from Portland, Oregon. She is the managing partner at Lux Capital Investment Group, which is an education-based investment firm. Their current focus is in multifamily, self-storage, and ATMs. Sudra is a GP on 10 units and seven short-term rentals and an LP on nine self-storage and multifamily properties. Sudra, thank you for joining us and how are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much, Ash. It's our pleasure to have you. Hey, before we get started, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Yeah, absolutely. I've been interested in real estate since I went to business school and I interned at a developer and that's still a long-term interest of mine, but I ended up underwriting multifamily 
investments for institutional equity partners. So we were basically syndicating funds and the investors in those funds were other institutional equity partners like banks, pension funds, life insurance companies, et cetera. So I have kind of an institutional background and that's where I sort of cut my teeth in terms of learning the multifamily space. And since then I decided I wanted to be an entrepreneur and not work in that sort of corporate bank environment. And I built my own real estate portfolio. I house hacked, I did short-term rentals. I did one flip. That was like the very first deal I did. And my short-term rental portfolio really has replaced my corporate income. I was able to achieve that in three years, just with a pretty small portfolio, but it's so high in cash flow that it replaces my corporate income. And at that point, I decided I like short-term rental, but I don't want to be all in on hospitality. I want to diversify my income streams. And so that's when I went back to the world of syndications, but this time in the private placement space where I'm working with individual investors instead of being in a bank and having other banks as the investors. So now that's what I do. I help investors gain access to some of the best deals across the space. And we invest across asset classes, operators, and geographies. So my investors have access to a diverse array of these amazing commercial real estate investments. Awesome. Hey, I got to ask you, how many years into your career were you before you realized you wanted to go out on your own? Oh gosh. I lasted in corporate about two and a half years before I cut the cord and took a big break from it. So I was never really very well suited to be in an office environment. I wasn't thriving, but at the same time, Osh, I had the golden handcuffs. So I had worked my way up over the course of those two and a half years or so. And I had an office with a view. I was making really good money. I had the things that I thought I was working towards. And I also bought a house and it was a really comfortable period of time. And honestly, the only reason I think I was able to cut the cord was because it was a bit of a forced hand. So my company went through a merger, which failed, and I would have had to move across the country to stay with the company. But I decided I'm going to take some time. And my friend, I thank God for surrounding myself with good people. They just encouraged me take some time for yourself rather than just jump back into another underwriting job. Because I was also doing that. I was interviewing for other jobs and I was thinking, okay, I can easily get in here or here. But my friend said, just take a hundred days, think about a hundred days. And that hundred days, it was like a mental hurdle that I needed to get over. Once I decided I was going to take a hundred days off from being in the corporate environment, my mind just expanded and I decided, okay, I'm actually going to just go traveling with no return ticket. And the golden handcuffs, it really took me a long time, over a year to sort of unwind the mentality that I needed to have a paycheck and that I wanted to be an entrepreneur the layers of societal conditioning that I personally felt. It took a while, but that trip I do credit. And I did all sorts of things on that trip. I rode horses in Patagonia. I built an earth ship. I surfed and danced tango in Argentina. And I just did all kinds of great things. And that sense of freedom, I just didn't have that ever in my working life. Yeah. You said you're not well suited for the corporate world. Why is that? (laughs) Well, it's taken me some time to really reflect on that and figure out 
what story I'm going to tell myself about that. But what I've sort of come to is that I need to be motivated to pursue my own dreams rather than work as kind of a small part of a big thing. What really gets me juiced is working on something that I'm directly going to be benefiting from. And I found that when I was working in the corporate world, as my responsibilities increased, after a certain point, my pay only increased incrementally and it was also capped. So you're just continuing to expect it to perform at a higher and higher level and not be able to get compensated for that. Whereas now that I work for myself, there's no cap on how much I can make and I live or die by what it is that I produce now that I'm an entrepreneur. And I just prefer it that way because it just makes me more engaged in what I'm doing day to day. All right. So after this hundred days, you had a real estate background. Did you dive right into real estate? Was that the fix and flip? They said, take a hundred days, but then I ended up taking 18 months actually traveling the world. And there was a reckoning moment that I had, Osh, where I was traveling. I was in Patagonia and my sister wanted me to come back from her medical school graduation. And I decided I actually don't want to go because I was living on so little money at the time. I was just literally living on about $10 a day. And I was having a great life because I was doing work exchange and I was meeting people and I was doing couch surfing and it was just really fun, but it was a very low overhead lifestyle. And so when my sister wanted me to come visit, I just didn't want to spend the money to go do that because I didn't have any passive income or I had very little passive income at the time. And it was going to seriously cut into my runway of how long I could continue traveling. So When I told her that I wasn't going to make it back for graduation, she stopped talking to me, which was a hard, but important thing. I actually am so grateful for it because it forced me to get to this reckoning moment of what am I going to do? What do I really want for my life? Do I really want to just be like traveling in South America for the next 15 years, not making any money, but just having a good time like this? Or do I want to have more financial abundance and be able to have choices in my life where I can be free to do what it is I want with my time, but I can also fly back and forth and make time for my family and stay connected to my community, et cetera. So from a hospital in Argentina, I Googled passive income. And honestly, I don't know where I heard that. Maybe from some rich dad book or something like that, but I hadn't really thought about it in a long time. I was just like, I need passive income. So I Googled it and I found that there was just this whole world of people pursuing passive income. And I'll tell you, Osh, you asked me, what did I do first? What did I dive into? Well, I later realized that I had these limiting beliefs about real estate because, okay, at this point in time, I had worked in real estate. I had worked in multifamily syndications or institutional equity. I had flipped a house and rented it successfully, a very successful project and did it with no money to my name when I started it. And I had bought a house and I was house hacking it. So my first house was cash flowing within the first month of me purchasing it. So I had several wins in the real estate space, but when I Googled passive income, I also unbeknownst to me had limiting beliefs around real estate. So when I started pursue entrepreneurship, I pursued everything but real estate. The limiting belief was unconscious. So I didn't really know that I had it at the time. So I actually started out as a digital marketing consultant when I decided to pursue entrepreneurship. And that was cool. And the, and, the typical you know. nomadic go-to <laughs> occupation, right? Yeah. Back then it was kind of new. It was 2015 and it was on the newer side of things you could do. And I liked that and I learned a ton. What I found is that I didn't actually really like having high value ticket clients. 
I found that stressful. And the whole point of my work was to not be stressed out. So it was just too much, right? I was kind of also sort of thinking about real estate, but just kind of as a side project, I didn't really fully commit to it. And so I was just learning too many things. And eventually I was like, I got to cut something out if I want to make any progress. And I started listening to bigger pockets. And that's when I actually got into Airbnbs and short-term rentals is I had a basement apartment. I told you I was house hacking my house. So I had a basement apartment. And the, when I came back from my travels, the manager had put this person in the basement who she actually didn't want to go upstairs. She just wanted to stay down there. And look, the basement at the time, it didn't have a kitchenette. It had a tiny bathroom and it was in a basement. It wasn't that nice at the time. But this person, she wanted to stay down there. And that was a light bulb moment for me because I had this five bedroom house and I had a number of roommates and it was just like too many people sharing one house. And I felt kind of overwhelmed by it. But when I realized that like, oh, this could actually be an apartment, this basement unit that I have, I was just absolutely amazed. And I just decided, okay, this is a light bulb moment for me. I can cut my house into different pieces and then I don't have to share the whole thing. I don't have to share the common spaces and people can have their own space. So when she moved out, I put the unit on Airbnb kind of just as a stopgap measure. I wasn't really ready to find another long-term tenant. And literally, Ash, I threw an airbed down there. I threw all this comfort, nothing matched. It was totally ugly. The walls were different color green from the previous owner. And it was just totally ugly. But guess what? It performed so well. It was summer of 2016. And I was making three times as much as I was with a long-term tenant, but with Airbnb. And so I just decided, wow, I better start investing. And so it was literally just one thing at a time. I just started making it a little bit nicer. And I still, at this point, considered it my side hustle. I considered Airbnb just something I was doing to get by. But over time, as I started liking digital marketing less and deciding that, okay, maybe I don't want to do this, then I started to realize that this Airbnb thing, the short-term rental is such consistent income. It's such high cash flow. I wanted more of that. So the next thing that I did was I started renting out my own room in the house and I would stay at my boyfriend's house on the weekends. So literally I just would stay at my boyfriend's at the weekends and rent out my room on Airbnb. That was good for a time being, but it wasn't a long-term situation. And this led me to my next light bulb moment, which is that my bedroom had French doors to the backyard. So what I discovered is that I could actually have the guests enter through the back doors of my house. And then they wouldn't have to come into the living room or through the front door. And I could put a kitchenette in there. I could put a microwave and a coffee pot and things like that. And also they had access to a bathroom. So it was another light bulb moment of me. And anyway, so that's kind of the beginning of my Airbnb story. I slowly grew up from there. I developed my garage into an ADU and then I purchased a four plus ADU. Oh, sorry. An ADU is an accessory dwelling unit. So this was pretty much a small development project. It took me three years to complete actually, because I was in a historic district. And if anybody knows anything about historic districts, they can be very difficult to get through, but I was able to build it in three years. So now I have literally three rental units in my house and I still have my house to myself. Like I still have at least 2,500 square feet to myself. And then I bought a fourplex and I bought it in a commercial zone. So I had the underlying entitlements because for those of you who are thinking about short-term rentals, one thing you need to be very mindful of is the local zoning laws and what you can actually do legally. So 
what I discovered in Portland was that if I could buy a place in a commercial zone, like a fourplex or something like that, that was built after 2012, then it was built to the new building code, then I would have to do less work to convert the use to a short-term rental. And so that's what I did. I was able to find one. It feels like a stroke of luck, but I did find one that was perfect for what I wanted. It was located in a great area, very centrally located and built in 2013. And it was still a long process of converting it to the hotel use, but it provides me with such an edge over other people because now I have these legal Airbnb units that I can legally rent. A lot of people were breaking the rules for a long time, just renting places out on Airbnb. So that's kind of how I built my short-term rental business. So let's fast forward to investments in multifamily, self-storage, and ATMs. And you're also a capital raiser, right? Yeah. Okay. How did that evolve? So as I mentioned earlier, after I replaced my corporate income with short-term rentals, I decided I need to diversify my income. So this is how I think about my wealth building is that I've got a business which generates cash flow, but then that t- requires my attention. And so I want passive investments that are in diverse areas. So I take the money from my business, from my Airbnbs, and I put that cash flow into my passive investments. So that way my income streams are diversified. I consider my Airbnb income semi passive income, but I consider my passive investments purely passive investments. So I've got this semi-passive business income that I put into my real estate syndication. So I found that when I was getting into syndications, my main thing was I saw my parents, their 401ks went down by 40% in 2008. And a lot of people probably saw something like that. Thankfully, they weren't at retirement age and they had some runway to recover. But as you know, there's this lost decade from 2000 to about 2013, where the S&P 500 didn't gain any value, just been up and down. So I saw my parents lose... 40%. Obviously it did eventually recover, but I was very concerned with downside protection when I was thinking about getting into syndications. I knew that there had been a lot of people in real estate that were hit hard. Obviously people were able to handle it differently. And what I discovered is that there are actually people who made it through the downturn. And that's my whole approach is downside protection. So with that in mind, I focus on recession resilient asset classes. And to me, You can find recession resilience in a different asset class. Like I know you do an amazing job in the commercial space, but for me, I'm currently focused on multifamily, mobile home parks, self-storage and industrial. And those are some of my favorite asset classes. There's other ones that are intriguing to me, like RV parks and co-housing and senior living and ATMs. So I'm looking for these asset classes, which are going to still perform well during a downturn. And then what I do is I use the fund to fund structure and I provide my investors with a opportunity to learn about these different asset classes and to have access to these high quality deals. How did you position yourself for these investors to find you? Because listen, you were a nomad, right? You were the girl that was traveling the world and you had some good real estate wins. How do you convince somebody that you're the go-to person? for their passive investments? I think the transition for me to presenting myself in a different light was a somewhat gradual one. I did go to business school and I had a good reputation from that. And 
what I eventually did was I started building a thought leadership platform. So I started really putting myself out as somebody who's fully focused on real estate now. So I have a website. Sometimes I talk about real estate on social media. I have a newsletter. I also have a podcast that's called Passive Income Unlocked. So just these pieces of me, I've started to put them forth and build up what is a more credible investment face as opposed to just like a wandering traveler, which there's also something very attractive about that is what I found is that a lot of people were also attracted to that part of my story of the traveler. So if I can kind of marry those two and be like, well, that traveling, it did actually help me learn that I want to be invested in real estate because it gives me the freedom to do more of that. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. When it comes to scaling your real estate business, is lack of capital holding you back? Raising private capital on demand can be a major challenge, but you can get the knowledge and tools you need to succeed when you attend Dana Cornell's four-week Raise Capital Masterclass Live. After starting out with no capital or relationships, Dana has raised over $1 billion twice in the past 20 years. And he has made it his mission to share the best of what he's learned with business owners and investors like you. You can learn more at danacornell.com forward slash best ever. Dana's Raise Capital Masterclass Live allows you to immediately unlock and raise capital on demand, drastically increasing your business's growth. If you're ready to take your business to the next level, go to danacornell.com forward slash best ever to enroll today. I'd like to introduce you to my good friends over at PassiveInvesting.com, a private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. PassiveInvesting.com makes it easy for you to start investing in real estate. They focus on acquiring institutional quality apartments and self-storage facilities with private accredited investor funds. They also have a real estate debt fund that offers hard money loans to local fix and flippers across the U.S., which currently has a 0% default rate. With a portfolio of over $700 million in assets and controlling over $250 million in equity, they know how to secure the best deals and how to avoid the red flags. If you are interested in learning more, please reach out directly to PassiveInvesting.com and request the free Passive Investing investor guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. How do you qualify investments that you put your investors funds into? So I'm very selective with who I work with and it takes a long time for me to get comfortable with a sponsor and I follow them closely. I go through a vetting process. I look at their deals. I look at their content. I talk to other people who've invested with them. And I'm really careful to work with just what I consider to be some of the best investors in the space. And I don't work with a lot of different investors. So that's another thing. It's like, my goal is just to have a handful of relationships that I develop over time. And I continue to work with those people. So The qualification is a combination of time, understanding their investment philosophy, time talking to other people who've invested with them, getting to know them and asking questions about how their company works, going and visiting them whenever I can and visiting their properties, talking to some of their investors and looking closely at their financials. And I do a full review of the sponsors themselves as well. Does that include their personal financials? Yes. 
how deep do you dive into that and how do you verify those things? Well, that's a good question. I usually ask for personal financial statements and usually because people are giving those to their lenders already, it's something that they're willing to share with me. So we're an equity investor. We're also providing capital to the deal and I'm a trusted partner. So they provide this personal financial statements and I do a review of them similar to what I would do with when I was working at equity institutions as I read them. I don't necessarily feel like I need to investigate them extremely closely. Part of the getting to know people process is going and visiting them, right? So like some of our sponsors, I've been to their corporate offices. I've been to their events. We have calls. I have access to their cell phones. I talked to several different people on their team. So part of it is also just getting a gut check on, okay, how is this company operating? Do people like working for them? Do their vendors like working with them? So their attorneys. I try to talk to other third-party vendors that work with them and develop relationships with those people as well. Not necessarily verifying bank statements. I am putting a lot of different pieces together to make me feel comfortable. And also it depends on the number of people that are there. I think it's really important to make sure that your sponsor has enough financial backing that they can carry a deal or or put money into a deal if it falls short, because that is one place where people can really get tripped up. So I think there's a lot of different ways to go about verifying that. And the way that I've chosen to do it is through building a relationship and verifying it from several different sources, kind of looking in. Sudra, I got to ask you, so on the deals that you bring capital to, what percentage of the total cap stack are you bringing in? Well, it can really vary based on the size of the deal. So we're usually bringing between one and $3 million to the table. And sometimes these deals have a $50 million capital raise, and sometimes they have a $10 million capital raise. And what percentage of the GP does a sponsor typically carve out for capital raisers? Well, the way that I typically do it is through a class share This is the way that I feel most comfortable doing it. And every sponsor operates a little bit differently, but we have a class share that usually it's 500,000 plus, or sometimes it's a million plus. And so any investor who goes into that private placement, they're getting different terms. So we might not have a secondary hurdle. So we might get more of the equity on the back end. We might have a higher pref. And that's the most comfortable way that I feel to go about doing this particular work. So you don't really care what they're offering. You kind of go in and negotiate your own terms on a lot of these deals. Well, by the time that the offering docs are drafted, they've already decided what the class shares are. And then I have to go in and decide, is this going to work for me? But there's ongoing conversations that I'll have with sponsors and let them know this is what I'm looking for. And that I think will help them understand how they're going to craft their class shares. Can you give us a real world example of how a class share is carved out? Yeah. So with one of my current offerings, the 50,000, and if you're going to invest 50,000 directly with the sponsor, there's going to be a seven pref, and then it's a 70-30 split, 72 investors, 30 to the GP. And then once a 2X equity multiple is hit, then it goes to a 50-50 split. So that's what a regular LP would go if they went directly to the sponsor. 2X multiple over how many years? 
they don't actually specify that in the waterfall. Okay. So it can take 10 years to double your money. And then it would go to a 50-50 split. Yes. Okay. But part of this is also looking at the, the sponsor's track record and what, how they're actually performing, what their investment philosophy is and what they're trying to do and what you believe they're going to do. And in this case, the sponsor, they really like quicker exits and they're exiting their deals historically in one to two years. And that's just been the last few years. And so I don't know what it will be going forward, but that is their preference. And so, yeah, that's the thing with a lot of these deals is that there's what the legal documents say, but then what I do is I try to really understand the sponsor's investment philosophy and what it is that they want to do and what kind of relationships they're trying to build with their investors. So then ultimately I am making a bet and I'm making a guess and I'm inferring, I think this is what's going to happen. And I'm okay if it doesn't happen because, so I just went over the $50,000 class investment. So for the 500,000 class shares, what they'll get is they get an eight pref instead of a seven pref. And then it's a 70-30 split and then there's no secondary hurdle. So it's just a 70-30 split to that 500,000 class share. So that is how I get compensated is because we're getting a bigger piece of equity. So most of my compensation comes on the back end. And then I think that's proper because that creates proper alignment of interest where my interests are very closely aligned with the interests of my investors. And I'm in it for the long game. And yes, I need to keep the lights on and it needs to make sense in the meantime. So we structure it. So we'll raise a little bit more instead of 2 million we'll raise maybe 30 or 40. And that way I can, we can take some acquisition fees, pay for our legal fees and our accounting fees, et cetera. And that way I'm able to continue operating the business, but still the bulk of my compensation comes when we exit the deals. Interesting. So you negotiated a hundred basis points higher on the pref and the 70, 30 remains, they miss out on the 50, 50 waterfall. Is that right? The GP would miss out. Yeah. Oh, the GP misses out. Okay. Got it. Cause we're still going to get 70, 30 the whole time, but you're getting 30 of that 70, 30. No, we're getting 70. Ah, in my world, we do things a little bit differently. Our deals are typically flip-flopped. We do a much higher pref and then it's 70, 30, 70 in favor to the GPs. So got it. Okay. uh, Sorry. I had to readjust for a second. Okay. Interesting. Also, you don't have the step down to 50%. You stay at 70. Yeah. So you negotiate some really favorable terms for bringing a higher amount of capital to deals. Yeah. And then out of all of this, you mentioned the acquisition fee for you and your company. How else do you get compensated on the back end? Well, that is how we get compensated is we create another waterfall. So even though our fund is getting that 70-30 split until the end, and we don't have that step down to 50-50, we create another waterfall. So then our investors are getting a seven pref. And then maybe it's a 90-10 split. And so that way we're able to capture and we kind of model it out so that our investors are getting what they would get if they went directly to the sponsor. That's the goal and that's our intention and that's how we try to make it. And then we're getting maybe a 10% of what comes to the total fund or so. And then do your investors invest in one property at a time or do you have it set up where your fund invests in multiple properties? So that's something that I'm playing with and thinking about up until now, it's been on a deal by deal basis. Of course, sometimes one of those deals might have been on like a 18 property self-storage portfolio. 
So we were all getting diversification, but in this current deal that I'm doing, I have combined two properties from two different sponsors in two different cities. So that way my investors are getting diversification across different markets, sponsors, and asset types. So like a B plus property and a B property. You have to be very careful about how you do this. And in terms of creating a fund that's a blind fund, I have not ventured into that area yet. And I don't have any plans to at this time. So if I'm going to do a multi-asset fund, it's going to be pre-selected deals. So my investors already know which deals I'm purchasing. All right. Another question that I have is, have you ever had investors either lose money or not meet the anticipated returns? So far, we have been meeting or exceeding projections, except there's one property that we're in that we haven't been a full year yet. So we will see how that happens. There's been one property that we've had that the refinance, it's taking a long time. And so we haven't issued any cash flow yet. It's been about seven, eight months or so. And the refinance should complete now and hopefully we'll start cash flowing and catch up so that we will meet projections. But that's the one I think that hasn't sort of been meeting the expectations that were set forth, but I'm not concerned about it in the long run. It is something for me to consider as someone who's explaining these deals to folks that sometimes there may be a sponsor who chooses to, rather than return reserves, they're choosing to find the right debt partner. In this case, it's got over a dozen properties. And so the refinance is a little bit complicated. So it's taken some time to get it done. Are there some market forces at play that add to the complications? With interest rate volatility, I don't think that's actually caused a delay yet, but I won't know for sure. It's supposed to close at the end of this month. So we'll see if the interest rate market will pose any additional challenges to that property. But it is a floating rate product and we've locked in the spread. So I think it's going to go through. That's my best guess. Yeah. The reason that I ask is over the last 12 or so years, it's been pretty hard to lose money in real estate. Yeah. I've managed to do it somehow, but (laughs) that's besides the point. So going forward, are you looking to temper the expectations of your investors? This is an interesting point, right? Because when I kind of got back into syndications, it was 2019 or so. And back then it was the same conversation that we're having literally right now, because in 2019, people were thinking, gosh, well, it's been so good since 2014. Now we're going to have to pare back people's expectations. And so I think there's a gradual shift that happens in the marketplace. That's kind of what I've noticed is that a seven pref became more of the norm that you would see and return profiles. I still see people putting return profiles in large ranges. I do think that the sponsors who have been around a long time since prior to 2008. I think that sometimes those folks do put in more conservative projections. They're projecting more a 12 to 15 IRR rather than a 16 or 17 IRR. So they'll give themselves a range of expected returns, which I think is probably the wise thing to do. And it's something that I'm going to consider going forward. So you're going to share that range with your investors as well. I think so. Yeah. Even if my sponsors are projecting like a 16% 
I think it's probably wise. Of course, I would say that I'm still relatively new to the space in terms of the grand scheme of things. It's not like I've been doing this for 25 years. So I think that I might end up feeling like that's the wise thing to do. And the thing that I'm starting to tell my investors is that investing should be boring. If you want excitement, take a few hundred dollars and go to the casino. But investing should be boring and getting base hits consistently is going to be more effective for building your wealth in the long term than getting a really sexy IRR or equity multiple in a short time. So that's kind of how I'm starting to train my investors to think is that investing should be more boring than watching paint dry. We're not trying. I'm the opposite. Listen, I'm a impatient guy (laughs) from Jersey. All I want is home runs. (laughs) I I don't have the patience for base hits. (laughs) So I wouldn't make an ideal investor, but I get it. I think that's fair for someone like you because you're in the space and you are an active player. But I think for passive investors that the reason I like real estate is because it's predictable because it's less volatile than the stock market. And because over time, the results will be very exciting, even though it's not that exciting to actually watch it unfold. But that's actually a good thing because it allows for peace of mind. It allows for that set it and forget it type wealth building. So that's kind of what I'm sort of wanting to convey to my investors and help them have that mentality because people go into the stock market, I think they're like, oh, I'm going to win big. This is going to be so great. I'm going to have all this money and it can be a very volatile situation. So that's the reason I'm in this space is because I don't want that volatility. I just want slow, steady, and then exponential growth over time. What's your typical investor profile? I have a couple of different folks that I work with. I work with people who are retired and who are looking to just continue to put their money to work and they've worked their whole lives and they have accumulated some wealth. So they have a fair amount of money to invest and they're more comfortable investors. I also work with people who are maybe in their forties, who are hardworking professionals, who are looking to build that generational wealth, maybe not work as hard. Maybe they've been working 16 hours a day for a while and they're like, okay, this has been great, but I want to work less. I want to become more work optional. So I want some passive income. And I also want to be able to make sure that I can give my kids enough resources so that they can have a leg up or not have it pay for their grad school or something like that. And then the third type of person I work with is someone who's usually a female who's head of household and she's done really well for herself in her career, but hasn't really focused on investing. So I can come in and help her fill out her investing portfolio and think about her wealth in the long term. Got it. What is your best real estate investing advice ever? I really believe that the best real estate investing advice, which I've read before is don't wait to buy real estate, buy real estate and wait. There's obviously some caveats to that you want to buy right and you have to pay attention to it and you have to make sure that it's doing well, but getting started is just the most important part. Suja, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Yes, I'm ready. What's the best ever book you recently read? The best ever book that I recently read is Scaling Up by Vern Harnish. What's the best ever way you'd like to give back? I have two best ever ways. One is I volunteer with a youth mountaineering group and I help take high schoolers out on trips. We go mountaineering, we go backpacking, et cetera. And I also like to donate. So every time we close a deal, we'll make a donation to a local nonprofit that's doing something housing related. Suja, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? 
you can reach out through my website, which is www.luxe-cap.com, lux-cap.com. I'm also on LinkedIn, Sujata Sham, S-U-J-A-T-A-S-H-Y-A-M. Awesome, Sujata. Thank you so much for spending time with us today, giving us your story from not pursuing a corporate career, taking 100 days off initially, which turned into 18 months off and finding yourself in an incredible real estate career. So thank you for sharing all of that advice with us today. Thank you so much, Ash. It's been so fun to talk to you. Talk to you soon. Best ever listeners. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share the podcast with someone you think can benefit from it. Also follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day.